0: Welcome back to the underground sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. Today's episode will feature audio from our live underground session event held on October 5th, 2019. The topic was religious liberty and the disintegration of social discourse. The event featured a keynote address from Dr. Douglas Groteis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary as well as an expert panel comprised of Dr. Groteis, Jesse Nash, a local business lawyer, and Dr. Rosette Adera of Pillar College. If you would like more information about our live Underground Sessions events, please visit our website at www.millingtonbaptist.org underground sessions. We hope you enjoy this live special event. Now, let's head to the Underground Sessions. time constraints we are going to be starting right now. Um, my name is Bob Urbig. I'm one of the pastors here at Millington. And on behalf of all the leadership, I just want to welcome you to the Underground Sessions. Um, if you're a longtime attendee, we're glad that you're back with us. If this is your first time, we hope this evening blesses you and challenges you. Now, the Underground Sessions was created as a forum where we can have longer-form conversations around challenging topics. And in the world of cable news and social media, it certainly seems like everyone is trying to turn nuanced conversations into sound bites that go viral on YouTube. We don't believe this is the most productive, kind, or caring way to approach a difficult conversation. And so tonight, we hope to model a different way, a better way of talking to those who disagree with us. And so our topic this evening is an important one. We'll be talking about religious liberty. And it's a hot topic right now in particular due to the second part of our title tonight, The Breakdown of Social Discourse. And so let me share with you just a few statistics from a study done by the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, They they did a work entitled Faith and Healthy Democracy, which is available at our resource table upstairs if you wanna pick that up and check it out. So here's a couple of findings they found. First, talking with evangelicals, they said, on the topic of civility in the public square, the study found that among evangelicals, more than a fifth of respondents believed that civility in political conversations is not productive. And that rose to about half amongst people 18 to 34. More than half of evangelicals believe that if their political opponents were able to implement their agenda democracy would be in danger. A third finding was obtaining the fact that if somebody obtained one's news source primarily from social media or some other online image or video-based source, especially YouTube, that was associated with lower levels of civility. And conversely, almost two-thirds felt that print news media made public debate more respectful. And finally, and I found this really interesting for our conversation tonight. They said if it, if um, if people were concerned about religious liberty, and that was a primary issue for them, it was associated with higher levels of civility. In other words, if religious liberty is one of our primary concerns, we will be more civil. And so I find that intriguing. And so to get us started on this conversation tonight, I am honored to introduce our keynote speaker. Dr. Douglas Groteis is professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, where he heads the Apologetics and Ethics Master of Arts. He's the author of 12 books, including Christian Apologetics, Philosophy in Seven Sentences, and Walking Through Twilight. His articles have been published in dozens of journals and periodicals, including Philosophia Christi, Academic Questions, and the Journal of Christian Legal Thought. Well, I got my master's at Denver, I had the privilege of taking a few classes with him, and so would you join me in welcoming Dr. Douglas Groteis to the stage?
1: Thank you. I'm very happy and honored to be here. You have outlines on your table from my lecture. It is called Christians, Religious Liberty, and Loving Your Political Adversaries. And we are having this event in a Baptist church, And as I've studied it, I found out that about half of the Baptist preachers in Virginia had been arrested before the American Revolution. And those that were sometimes persecuting and wanting to license the Baptist pastors were Anglicans. And I'm an Anglican, and here I am in a Baptist church, and I didn't ask them to be licensed, and they didn't ask me to be licensed either. So I think we've come a ways here with religious liberty in the United States, religious liberty is rare in the history of the world. Now, in this talk, we're going to define this and I'm going to try to illustrate it, and we'll try to develop ways of being civil concerning our disagreements about religion and other things. But in the world today, we have tremendous re- religious conflict. Most countries, or at least many countries, have official religions. We have Eastern Orthodoxy, often oppressing Protestants in Russia, Muslims oppressing Coptic Christians in Egypt, Muslims oppressing, excuse me, Buddhists oppressing Muslims in Myanmar, Protestant and Catholic disputes ongoing in Northern Ireland. We consider the persecuted Christian church in India, Africa, North Korea, and so on. And in the United States, I believe we have a structure for addressing religious freedom that needs to be preserved, and I think in many ways should be copied, or should inspire nations around the world. But religious liberty is rare, and it is fragile everywhere, so if we are going to try to preserve it, we need to understand what it is and the basis for it. Now, Pastor Bob has already talked about our incivility in public discourse today, and I have to admit that I'm a recovering, uncivil, social media person. The 2016 election really brought out the worst in me in some ways, and I think I've learned a lesson in terms of being less severe, less quick to condemn, and so on. Keep, amazingly, keep some of my opinions to myself, Uh, not get bellicose about certain matters. So I'm really speaking to myself, in this whole area of being civil in public discourse and using our freedoms wisely. Now, our problem goes deep because societies need truth. Societies need to know the way reality is in order to function well. We can't be bumping up against reality constantly and hope to get along very well or to promote the common good. And we live in a society that some people have called a post-truth society, where truth is not of fundamental importance, where truth can be shelved or truth can be put aside for other purposes. And this this is not a recipe for a healthy or virtuous society in any way. And I think there's sometimes confusions among Christians concerning their place in civil society and the state. What kind of a stance should... Christians take with respect to religious liberty, with respect to their positions on various issues that we face, how do, we, how do members of different religions get along with each other in the public sphere, and so on. So my purpose is to understand the worth of religious liberty and to talk something about the place of Christians in the public sphere with respect to religious liberty. So I want to define some terms. I want to talk about what is a Christian, and then how is religious liberty developed, what is it, and how can it be preserved? So what is a Christian? I don't think that we should be quick to tell someone if they self-identify as a Christian that they are not, certainly. But if we take a biblical view, I think we need to stand on some fundamental issues such as a Christian is one who has embraced Jesus and his gospel message of grace. A Christian is a follower and worshiper of jesus of nazareth a christian is someone who accepts and embraces the gospel of christ which is the good news about the remedy for sin the need for repentance the opportunity for redemption through the agency of jesus his life death resurrection and ascension so we have the fact of the gospel and then to be a follower of christ your heartfelt embrace of the truth of this gospel and entrusting yourself to the person of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul very clearly lays out the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the fact of the gospel And then the Apostle John tells us of the reception of the gospel. He says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. So a Christian is one who has believed the gospel, received Christ, and wants to become God's servant. And Christians, of course, desire as much freedom of religion as possible to spread this gospel. However, I need to underscore that social or political freedoms are not necessary for the propagation of the Christian faith. And one of the great examples of this is Christianity in China. When Mao Zedong took over in the Communist Revolution in 1949, near, almost exactly 70 years ago, he began a bloody reign of persecution against Christians. He kicked out the missionaries, he closed down churches, and so on. And under his brutal communist rule, perhaps as many as 90 million people were killed by the state in peacetime. Now what has happened in China with respect to Christianity? There are are perhaps more members of Christian associations, than members of the Communist Party. With all of the missionaries kicked out, the churches persecuted, shuttered, and so on, Christianity grew underground, appropriately enough, grew underground, and is a tremendous force in China today. So we have to remember what Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So the gospel will spread, the gospel will be taught, people will teach it, suffer for it, defend it, and want to apply it whatever the social condition is. However, Christians and others should want the common good. We should want people to, in a civil way, speak and write of their deepest convictions about reality. So let's talk about the nature of religious liberty. Religious liberty historically developed slowly in the Christian West, and an excellent book explaining this, and really defending this historically, is by Robert Louis Wilkin, a book called Liberty in the Things of God. Christians, of course, were persecuted in the early Roman Empire, but apologists would argue that we're not bad for the state, and really our religion does not threaten anything essential to a good society. It certainly threatened emperor worship, because the early Christians would not worship the genius of the emperor, of course. But I have a quote here from an early church father Tertullian, from 160 to 220 A.D., he really gets at the heart of what religious liberty is. He said, It is only just and a privilege inherent in human nature that every person should be able to worship according to his own convictions, for one person's religion neither harms nor hurts another. Now, I think we need to add the proviso, usually. But he's speaking of the Christians in the Roman Empire specifically. Then, of course, eventually with Constantine, Christianity became legal. It was no longer persecuted. And later it was made the state religion under Theodosius in 380 AD. And Christians began to have more sway and more authority. So they began to have more of an influence as to how religions were treated with respect to the state. And I found another excellent quote from the early church by. Uh, Lactantius, 240-320 to 320 A.D. in his Divine Institutes, and I think this captures much of what religious liberty is and why we should defend it. If you wish to defend religion by bloodshed and by tortures and by guilt, it will no longer be defended, but will be polluted and profaned. For nothing is so much a matter of freedom, free will, as religion, in which, if the mind of the worshiper is disinclined to it, religion is at once taken away and ceases to exist. So he's making the point that you cannot compel belief. You can threaten someone if they don't believe something, but that's not going to make them believe it. So belief is a matter of your discretion, given what you know, given how you comport yourself. So that's a psychological observation, which is true. Now, certainly in Christianity, religion needs to be from the deepest level of the person, because Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10.9. Notice those two elements, confess and believe. So merely being external or confessing something does not mean that you truly believe it. But the biblical, the Christian understanding, goes to the very depth of the person, and that cannot be coerced. So as thinking developed in the West, and Wilkin does a tremendous job in explaining this, freedom of religion began to be viewed as a natural right, that is, something given by God. And this is a right antecedent to what the state may rule in its own law. And we really see, I think, the apotheosis of this in the Declaration of Independence and in the First Amendment, which I'll come to in just a few moments. But let me talk a little bit more about religious liberty in general. But to summarize the case in Wilkins' book, I want to read the last few sentences from the book. He says, Any account of the rise of religious freedom must give large place to the spiritual passion and intellectual energy of Christians. Men and women of faith knew, as Tertullian had written in the 3rd century, that religion cannot be imposed from without. The events of the 16th and 17th century were a catechesis on the nature of faith. God can be honored only if one gives something from within. That conviction, embodied in the lives of those who were persecuted and given voice in the writings of their champions, taught others that there could be no justice in society without liberty in the things of God. He makes a very profound case for that. So what could be the basis for religious liberty? First of all, it cannot be based on relativism. And Trump, some people try to base it on that. So if you talk about people having the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and so on, and you say, well, everything's relative, so everyone has a right to say what they think. Those two statements contradict each other. If everything is relative, then you can't say anything is a right for everyone. It's all relative to the individual or the social group or to something else that's contingent. So if you want to support religious liberty in a strong philosophical principled sense, you have to jettison relativism entirely. And liberty, religious liberty, is more than mere tolerance. Tolerance would be, I just put up with degrees uh, or viewpoints that I don't like. I put up with ideas that I disagree with. But the concept of liberty as it's developed in the Western world, and I think really rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition, is one of honoring those with differing opinions. You may disagree with them. You may have a rational case against their religious beliefs, but you want to honor their conscience, and therefore let them express their beliefs in a lawful way in a society, even if you end up profoundly disagreeing with them. So we want to honor the freedom of conscience with respect to religion, and then also, based on that, the freedom to practice one's religion of conscience, not simply to have beliefs, but to be able to practice them according to the dictates of one's conscience within the boundaries of civil law. And I want to briefly talk about a phrase we often hear now, and that is freedom of worship. We need to be careful with that phrase because it's too weak. When politicians especially will sometimes talk about freedom of worship, we favor that. What they often mean is what we do in the church, and don't go too much beyond that. So we want people to have the freedom to gather, to teach and preach and do what they do in the church. But in the secular world, that has to be secular. That is, Christians or anybody else really can't bring their religious convictions into the public sphere. Now that is something which I'll show is hostile to the ideals of the American founding. Now, I want to talk for a moment about the Declaration of independence and the First Amendment. And I just want to make a very quick point that some people believe these documents are merely historical artifacts. They should be dispensed with. And there is a recent article in Harper's Magazine. It's actually a dialogue with several thinkers. And I want to read something from one of the the people involved, Rosa Brooks. Let me tell you a story about what I do in my constitutional law classes at Georgetown. In my very first session, I say to my students, the United States has the oldest continually operative written constitution in the world. How do you feel about that? And everybody goes into rah-rah constitution mode. The U.S.-born students look smug, and the non-U.S.-born students look puzzled. After everybody has a chance to talk about how great it is that the United States has this very, very old written constitution, I asked them how they would feel if their neurosurgeon used the world's oldest neurosurgery guide, or if NASA used the world's oldest astronomical chart to plan space shuttle flights. And they all get quiet. Well, I'll tell you what, if I were there, I wouldn't be quiet. I say, do you really want to so relativize and so trample on this document that comes out of centuries of development of legal and political thought? Do you really want to say, that what is stated in the Declaration or in the Constitution is outmoded simply because it was drafted 250 years ago? It's absurd. And this is really an example of what C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield called chronological snobbery. If we have new political theories and new political thinkers and documents, then why would we hold to the old ones? And this is a confusion based on technological development the development of what she referred to in terms of medicine, let's say. Yes, that is developed, and the newer tends to be truer. But when you're talking about fundamental issues about human existence and principles of how we live together well, the newer is not necessarily the truer. So that's a basic category of thought we need to have in place. The freedoms we have in the Declaration and the Constitution took centuries to work out, they were long fought, hard won, rare, and they are fragile. And yes, I'm ticked off at this person. I think I'll, I'll have to write an email or something. <clears throat> now, if you visit, which I have not, the Korean War Memorial in Washington, D.C., it has printed on it four very profound words. Freedom is not free. Viktor Frankl, the great German psychiatrist and survivor of concentration camp in World War II said, we have a statue of liberty on the East Coast, we also need a statue of responsibility on the West Coast. So, freedom is not free. We should try to stay true to our founding ideals in the United States. So, let's go to the Declaration, which could be called the Why of America. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, notice the theistic basis for this. Human rights are not free floating strange objects in the universe. They are given to us by God, and because of their divine origin, they cannot be annulled or canceled out by any human government. They are given and the state should recognize them, all right? Let me also note that that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, means the pursuit of a virtuous life over a lifetime. It doesn't mean the titillation of your nerve endings. Happiness is used in the classical Greek and also Christian idea of a well-lived life. Now, some will try to justify the idea of inalienable rights apart from a theistic philosophy. And I don't see how they could possibly do it. Because if you're an atheist, you don't believe that human beings have intrinsic rights or intrinsic responsibilities because the world has no meaning. It has no purpose. There is nothing upon which to base this kind of thing. If you're a relativist, then everything is relative to the social condition or the historical setting. You have no basis for it. See, Thomas Jefferson was a pretty wise philosopher in writing this. So let's now go on to the First Amendment when we talk about religious liberty and the other freedoms. This is the First Amendment to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I hope familiar words. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So this is the guide and guarantor of these five freedoms. And it's based on the idea of the freedom of conscience. We're not saying the conscience is infallible, but it should be viewed as inviolable. That is, it should not be played with. A person's conscience may be informing them wrongly, but we do not want to try to get people to act against their conscience or manipulate people. I read in a new book by Stephen Waldman, Sacred Liberty, that in the United States, uh, religious peace was encouraged by religious competition. So we don't have an establishment of one religion over another. We have the opportunity for religions to, if you will, compete, to win people's affections. And that has actually, I think, worked very well in the United States, and it makes a lot more sense with respect to religious liberty than an institutionalized church. So my last point, religious liberty and loving our political adversaries. We live in a very contested political, social environment, a lot of arguments, name-calling, invective, flying back and forth. How might we engage if we are Christians or religious in any sense, or irreligious? What is the public square? I I view the public square as a place of of shared viewpoints, where people share their particular views on things, of interests and actions related to the common good. So I'll give you three basic ideas. I get this from Oz Guinness. What about a sacred public square or a theocratic public square? That is where one religion simply dominates the legal and political system. The short answer to that is that it's un-American and unbiblical, and that's enough. Do I need to say too much about this? I don't think so. But denying the so-called sacred public square or denying theocracy does not mean eliminating religious ideas in public life. You see, the First Amendment prohibits the establishment or the takeover of one religion. It does not prohibit in any way the involvement of religious people in every level of society it allows, and actually encourages that. So we don't want a theocratic public square. Do we want a naked public square? I get this from Richard John Newhouse's book of about 35 years ago. The naked public square is the idea that we should leave religion out of it, we should pretend that the public square simply has to be neutral, secular space. Now that just means that secular views, irreligious views, win by default. And religious people can have freedom of worship, that is in their little churches or anywhere else, but they dare not bring their deepest convictions into the public sphere. Well, I think I've already argued sufficiently that this is not an American idea. This is not an American ideal. And it doesn't fit this long tradition of working out the meaning of religious liberty in Western history. And by the way, I hope you know that the phrase, the separation of church and state, is in none in no founding document in the United States. It was in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to uh, a group of Baptists, and it's not really the best way to, of viewing things. Okay, if we don't want a theocratic public square or a naked public square, what do we want? A civil public square. That is where we can recognize what you might call a principled pluralism of differing beliefs, values, and interests. It doesn't mean everything is relative, but it means that society should allow the opportunity for people of different views and different religions to peacefully express their views. And moreover, uh, we should go beyond peaceful. I think we should try to be as civil as possible. But if we are followers of Christ, then we have something to say to the world, not merely to the church, but to the state, and to the arts, and to business, and everything else. So what I want to talk about is what you might call a prophetic civility. Being polite, being calm, being filled with the Spirit, and being loving and patient and kind and so on, but being willing to speak a word to the world from God based on the Bible. I think we need to emphasize the life of the church in building up godly people, people who demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. We don't want to just become like every other political actor out there when we advance a particular idea. We want to do so in a very virtuous way. And as Jeremiah 29.7 says, we should seek the welfare of the city where we are, not simply the church, but the city, the culture. Christians are in some senses exiles, on this earth, but we are to seek the welfare of the city to which we are exiled. So we should be agents of the common good and be exemplary citizens. I'll be preaching on that tomorrow here at the church. So we should show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor, as 1 Peter two seventeen puts it. I think a key text here for being civil And making the most of our religious liberties and honoring those of others is to speak the truth in love. If we speak the truth without love, we can be very, very bellicose and very opinionated. We might put a lot of people off, even if it's the truth. Or if we have a kind of mushy, spongy love without truth, it becomes mere sentimentality. So the dynamic combination here is speaking the truth in love, led by the Holy Spirit. And I can't develop it, but Osginis has written very profoundly of what the founders referred to as the golden triangle of preserving a free society. That is, the liberty of conscience and liberty in religion and freedom in general, combined, though, with virtue of good citizens who seek the common good, who are not simply after their own good, and then also faith, Christian faith backing up the virtue and the goal of the common good. And as we think about preserving religious liberty and using it wisely for those of any religion or no religion, I think there's some hot spots, particularly, that evangelical Christians need to face with civility and use our religious liberty well. And I'm simply going to identify them. I don't have time to actually talk about them. But certainly... Questions of sexual identity and sexual relationships with respect to Christian institutions. Christian institutions such as churches and schools may be viewed as bigoted if, let's say, they would not hire someone who is in a same-sex marriage. That could eventually become illegal. So we've got to consider, those of us who hold these convictions, how we might respond to something like that. And then also, how do Christians and churches handle political candidates and alignments with political parties. We have a tension here, and I'll speak of this tomorrow too, between wanting in some cases to support candidates, but as biblical people, we can't support a lot of the way they live or other things they say that we think are out of alignment with a godly perspective. So how can we engage the political world as citizens and freely as religious citizens but not be captivated by political ideologies and be decapitated by political slogans and sound bites and talking points and all the rest of it. So, my challenge is we should know where our religious liberty came from. We should preserve it for those who are religious, those who are irreligious. We have the great five freedoms of the First Amendment based on the God given rights given to us. Were articulated in the Declaration of Independence. And yes, let us engage as much as we can politically. Let us enter the public sphere with people we disagree with. But it's possible to do this with a cool head and a warm heart. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith culture, and politics. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends, and please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store so others have a better chance of finding us. You can also connect with us at www.MillingtonBaptist.org, where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God, as more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time on the Underground Sessions.